As we remain standing for the word of the Lord, we turn our attention now to Psalm 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. A Psalm of David, Maskeel. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of the great hiding place thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, as we come now to this psalm of David, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning. You have given and preserved the words of Scripture through the ages, and in them you give your revelation to us and to our children forever, that we might do the words of the law, that we might know our Heavenly Father, that we might know the comfort of the Holy Spirit and be conformed more into the image of Jesus. And we are ever thankful. We thank you for the time you have given us to consider this text before us now, for the truths and instructions it provides, and we thank you for the great salvation we enjoy in Christ. For it is in his glorious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm tempted to walk out among you this morning and say, come on, scooch in. This is just a small little family conversation. But I am thankful for everyone who got out on this rainy morning and came together to worship our Lord. But before we get into the exegesis of Psalm 32, I would like to tell you a little story. Some time ago, there was a young farm boy born into a family of modest means. In some ways, his story is not unlike many stories we all know of or have heard about. His mother was a devout Christian woman of deep faith, but his father spent his entire life in unbelief up until the very last moment in his deathbed conversion. He was a bright boy and generally a good student, academically speaking anyway, Later in life, as he looks back on his childhood, 
he recalls an incident when he was 11 years old. He and his friends stole some fruit from a neighborhood garden, and he recalled that they didn't steal because they were hungry or because they wanted the fruit. In fact, they didn't want the fruit at all. He wrote that he stole the fruit because it was not permitted. He actually loved stealing the fruit. He loved the sin. Not the stealing of the fruit per se, but the sin itself is what he loved. As an adult looking back on that incident, he realized that the human person is naturally inclined to sin, depraved and in need of the grace of Christ. At the age of 17 and with the generous financial help of a friend, he went away to further his education and study philosophy. And despite the warnings from his godly mother, he pursued a hedonistic lifestyle filled with all sorts of debauchery and lust. And in spite of this sinful lifestyle, he excelled academically, particularly in the area of public speaking. And by the age of 30, he had won one of the most visible and valuable academic positions in the world, a position that set him up for a powerful political career. And I see smiles on your faces as some of you have guessed who I'm speaking of. But God was merciful and had greater plans for this gifted young man I, of course, am referring to Augustine, who was converted to the Christian faith at the age of 31 and was baptized by Ambrose of Milan on Easter Day, the year of our Lord, 387. Augustine went on to become Bishop of Hippo and one of the most influential theologians of our, uh, in history. He knew the depravity of man firsthand and the importance of confession and repentance. In fact, in his book entitled Confessions, he wrote this, During all of those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation." It was Augustine who claimed this psalm, Psalm 32, to be his favorite. In fact, he had the words of Psalm 32 inscribed on the wall by his sickbed as he lay dying so that he might be able to meditate upon them better. What is it about Psalm 32 that caused Martin Luther to count it among his favorites and to refer to it as a Pauline psalm? Why is it that G. Campbell Morgan, the predecessor to Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel, wrote in his notes on this psalm that among all the psalms, there is none that touches deeper the things in life of the soul or more perfectly reveals the methods of Jehovah in the matters of sin, sorrow, 
and guidance. Is it not the clear picture in this psalm that it provides of our shared misery as pitiful sinners before a holy God? Is it not the importance of confession herein revealed as we feel His hand heavy upon us while we foolishly try to bear the weight of our sin alone? And is it not the ready mercy and forgiveness of God explained as He takes the burden from our back and restores both our spirit within us and our relationship to the Heavenly Father. Let us then make it our task this morning as we examine Psalm 32 and consider what the Holy Spirit has preserved for us, for the church, and that each time we return to this text, we do so with greater thanksgiving, so that our merciful God and eager willingness and with eager willingness to confess our sins before Him I'm so thankful for the excellent reading this morning that Pastor Lovett brought of that passage from 2 Samuel as it helps us to understand part of the backdrop of this psalm. Well, let's start at the very beginning, at the title, Psalm 32. We will include the title, A Psalm of David, Maskeel. So clearly, we don't have to exegete too much. This is a psalm written by David, but there may be some questions. What is Maskeel? What is the purpose and intent of the psalm? And what is the occasion of its writing? When we looked through the scriptures at the word Maskeel, we find it 13 times, all in the title, titles of the psalms. It likely means to give understanding, to give instruction, or perhaps contemplation. It may be a liturgical direction to that end. But it tells us it is that which is to be meditated upon so that we might receive the instruction contained therein. It stems from the Hebrew word that is translated in Psalm 47, verse 7, seeing ye praises with understanding. Understanding. So we see then that the intent or purpose of this psalm is to provide instruction or understanding. It is a psalm that provides wisdom to those with ears to hear. But what is the occasion of this psalm? Why was it written, and why is it where it is? It's difficult to be conclusive. I'll confess that up front. But I would like to make the case that this psalm was written after Psalm 51. That penitent psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan concerning the murder of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba. The text Marion read for us this morning. As we turn to Psalm 51, beginning at verse 7 through 13, we read, Purge me with hyssop. These are the words of David, remember. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from Thy presence, and take not Thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of Thy salvation, and uphold me with Thy free spirit. Then, then will I teach transgressors Thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto Thee. 
In Psalm 51, we see the anguishing cry of David. We see this cry as he contemplates the fullness of his sin. He confesses his sin before God and seeks forgiveness and restoration. Psalm 51 brings us into the very moment or days following Nathan's confrontation and we hear, as it were, David's prayer of confession. Psalm 32 can then be seen to be more reflective and didactic as David teaches transgressors thy ways. There is a cohesiveness as we consider Psalm 51 and the circumstances behind it in Psalm 32 in the light of that. Turning now to verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. These opening two verses declare that state of man who has experienced divine forgiveness. We are blessed. We are in a state of contented happiness before the Lord when our transgressions are forgiven. The word forgiven here carries with it the picture of being born away from us, to be lifted up from off of our shoulders is the picture we can imagine. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered. This makes us think of the sin of our first parents who required a covering from God in order to cover their nakedness. Don't, don't confuse this with a, a picture of sin being swept under the rug and covered that way. No, when the Lord clothes our nakedness, we are naked no more. Blessed is the man when the Lord imputeth not iniquity. The sin that was incurred is not counted against him, not reckoned to his account. Iniquity. What is iniquity? That is the guilt of sin and perversity and depravity in our life. And blessed is the man in whom spirit there is no guile. Guile. Guile is deceit, treachery, an intent to hide or perhaps confess incompletely. It is the opposite of a full, transparent, and unreserved truthfulness this is the state we so long for and desire to ever remain in, isn't it? A state of happiness before the Lord with clear consciences, nothing held back, nothing hidden, full blessedness. And yet we so often fall short. We sin and fail to repent. We fail to confess our sin before the Lord. We fail to confess our sins specifically and quickly. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. It has been estimated that it may have been well over a year that David held back from confessing his sin before the Lord with regards to this incident with Uriah and Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, David says, My sin is ever before me. Your sin is ever before you. 
We cannot run from our sin. We cannot simply look away from our sin to pretend that it isn't there. We can't devise a sufficiently subtle or clever scheme that justifies our sin. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Our sins are ever before us. And if left unconfessed and unrepented of, they eat away at the very core of our being. If, if we are in Christ and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that is. The Holy Spirit cannot keep pleasant company with sin. So why did David wait so long to confess his sin before the Lord? Why did it take the prophet Nathan to bring true conviction and brokenness before David? How is it that a man after God's own heart could tarry so long, bearing the weight of these tremendous sins? I think that part of the answer can be found again in Psalm 51, beginning there at verse 14, where we read, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth Thy praise, for thou deservest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. No superficial walking through the motion of sacrifices would have done. God was at work in David preparing him for true confession and repentance. Yet David held, held his sin in. It ate away at him all the way to the core of his being, to his very bones. We use similar phrases, don't we, with respect to the bones? I'm chilled to the bone, some of you say. Some of us rarely use that phrase. I'm bone tired or bone weary or that fellow over there is bad to the bone. As his sin was ever before him, the effect worked its way ever deeper. There is a roaring in his soul, the roaring of a wild, untamed beast of sin within him. Day and night the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him, convicting and preparing him for genuine confession before the Lord. Against thee, thee only have I sinned, cries David, in Psalm 51, this continues day after day until finally there is no strength in him, no will to struggle against the ever-present hand of the Lord. His moisture is turned into the drought of summer, and finally, the Lord brings Nathan. Finally, the battle is over. The Lord has prepared him with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Selah. And that brings us to verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. As we read these words, we can, we can almost hear the key change as David finally yields to the hand of the Lord. 
through the words and careful analogy of the prophet David, the Lord brings David to the point of confession that he has been preparing in him. David holds nothing back. He acknowledges his sin and does not hide one bit of the iniquity that up until this point he has been concealing. And when he finally confessed his sin unto the Lord, the Lord forgave his iniquity. The guilt of his sin was removed. The dark, oppressive minor key has ended and a quiet but definitive major chord has been struck. David humbly confesses his sin and the Lord forgives. For we see that his confession was genuine and from the heart. So with a broken and contrite heart, David cries out to the Lord, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David cries this heartfelt prayer. <coughs> Genuine repentance comes from the very depths of his heart. You see, man, man looks out on the outward appearances of things, but God looks on the heart. God knows the secrets of our hearts. He searches the heart and tests the mind. He is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When we come before the Lord looking unto Christ, confessing our sins, seeking His forgiveness, when we repent and believe the good news, He is faithful and just to forgive. But David did wait a long time before confessing his sin, and we can be so very like that, can we not? If we see that David fell into the ditch of avoidance, failing so long to confess his sins due to pride or a futile attempt to run from God or minimizing the weight of sin or whatever it was, there's another ditch on the other side of the road we must also take care to avoid. There are those who would so misunderstand and misapply the doctrine of justification that they would fall into the ditch of presumption with regards to their sin. In this ditch, we presume upon the grace of God as we hold so tightly to an understanding that our sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with on the cross, and they have, that we fail to see the necessity and importance of confession. In 1 John Chapter 1, we read, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the believer, the New Testament believer, is expected to confess his sins. If you can sin and sense no need to confess that sin, to not be bothered by that sin, to not feel the hand of the Lord weighing heavily upon your conscience, you should wonder if you are deceiving yourself and have never had the grace of the Holy Spirit effectively work truth and saving faith within you. For the believer who transgresses the law of God, who has ventured into some sin, 
there is that immediate stinging prick of the Holy Spirit letting us know that we have once again fallen short and we need to repent and confess our sin. There is a grace in this pricking of the Holy Spirit, a grace at work in us as we feel the shame and the guilt of our sin. Don't run from this shame. Embrace it. Why is it then we are so often slow to acknowledge our sin before the Lord and know the sweet release that we obtain before His throne of mercy and the restoration of our fellowship with our Creator? Is it pride? I suspect this is the reason. Perhaps fear. Is there fear of judgment and facing the consequences of our sin? But there is no reason to fear. And certainly pride has no place before God. This psalm shows us how we are to deal with our sin. It is so simple. So obvious. We could even break it down into a four-step process for those who are so inclined. (coughs) Who wants a four-step process while I take a drink? You're going to get it anyway. All right, here's the four-step process for you process people. One, admit your sin. David admitted his sin. David called his sin, sin. He didn't use a euphemism for his sin or try in some other way to minimize his sin. He simply and plainly admitted and acknowledged his sin. Number one, admit your sin. Number two, uncover your sin. When confronted by Nathan, David ended his attempt to conceal his sin. This is complete and transparent revealing of your sin. It must be fully exposed to the light of the truth of God's Word. Nothing less will do. You cannot hide your sin from God. Uncover your sin. Number three, confess your sin. When we confess our sins, we declare and speak out our sins to the right person. In this case, David did it before the Lord. In the right way, openly, broken, contrite, and at the right time, when confronted and when we come to know that we have sinned. Hosea puts it this way, take words with you. And return to the Lord. Say to Him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Confess your sin. And finally, number four, know that your sins are forgiven. God forgave David completely because David confessed completely. And David knew without doubting that he had been forgiven. When God forgives our sin... The matter has been dealt with, and we are to move on toward joy and rejoicing and not continually dredge up the matter and wallow in self-pity. Know that your sins are forgiven. You hear this weekly. We confessed our sins this morning, and it is good. So we come to the last part of this psalm, verses 6 through 11. And as we consider this last part of the psalm, following verse 5, which is that great hinge of forgiveness, that hinge of forgiveness where where David calls us to pause, to selah, and consider the text. In this great hinge, 
we learned that after this great hinge, we learned that forgiveness is not the end of the matter, but rather the beginning. David now turns in this psalm to fulfill the promise he made in verse 13 of Psalm 51 to teach transgressors the ways of the Lord. And he does so with six points of instruction as he directs us to pray to God, rest in God, learn from God, submit to God, trust in God, and finally to rejoice in God. And so let's step through each of those instructions. First, pray to God. In verse 6, we see that we need to be in honest, prayerful communion with God. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. All those who are forgiven in Christ are invited into fellowship with the Father. As God's children, we are able to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we can cry, Abba, Father. Divine protection is ever there for us in the midst of the raging torrent as we enter into prayer with God. Whether it be the dark night of the soul, the burden of unconfessed sin, or the trials of this difficult life, we are to seek the Lord in prayer while He may be found. The mercy seat is the way to heaven for all who will ever come there. There is, however, a set time for prayer, beyond which it will be unavailing between the time of sin and the day of punishment. Mercy rules, and God may be found. But when once the sentence has gone forth, pleading will be useless, for the Lord will not be found by the condemned soul. Seek Him. Pray to Him while He may be found. Instruction number two, rest in God. David teaches us in verse 7 that Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. As I was reading this, that old standard hymn, Rock of Ages, came to mind. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. We are to rest in God as He is our hiding place and the one who preserves us in the midst of troubles. And He surrounds us with songs of deliverance. It has to be one of the great blessings of being part of this particular church <clears throat> to have so many psalms sung with such regularity that they are either memorized or very familiar. As I was preparing this message, it was impossible not to have Psalm 32c just flowing over you over and over and over again. Consider the change in David. Before he confessed his sin, there was a roaring all day long. And now, now the air all around him resounds with the sweet songs of deliverance and praise. Thirdly, we are to learn from God. In verses 8 and 9, David switches the instructive voice to that of God. God is speaking to us. In verse 8 we read, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. 
I will guide thee with mine eye. Our walk with God is to be that of a, of a child with a father or a student to a teacher. We are to know that instruction. We are to know that God provides instruction through the revelation of His Word and the means of grace that He has ordained and that He is sovereign over all of our lives and His eye is ever upon us. Our Savior is our instructor. The Lord desires to teach His children to walk in the way of integrity. His Holy Word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit are the directors of the believer's daily walk. We are not pardoned so that we can pursue again our own lust, but that we may be educated in holiness and trained up into perfection. A heavenly training is one of the covenant blessings which adoption seals to us. Instruction number four, submit to God. In verse nine we read, Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. It's an interesting verse. We are not to be impulsive like a horse, for you horse people, they can be a little twitchy, right? Or be stubborn like a mule. We are to be teachable and submissive to the instruction of God and yield easily to His leading. And let's consider David. David rushed into his sin with the impulsiveness of a horse. But when it came to confessing his sin, he was more like that stubborn mule. We need to submit to God in His leading. Instruction number five, trust in God. In verse 10, we see the wisdom of trusting in God. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. As we confess our sins and know the mercy of God, we are surrounded by the perfection of His covenant love and enduring mercy. God's grace is greater than all our sins. But for the wicked, this is not so. <coughs> Excuse me. The wicked don't and indeed cannot trust in God as we're instructed to do here. Here we see that gospel call alluded to in the last part of verse 13 in Psalm 51, that as David teaches transgressors the way of the Lord, sinners shall be converted unto thee. You can almost hear David preaching, O sinner, know that the end of your ways is but sorrow, but he who trusts in the Lord shall be surrounded by mercy. Or in the words of another hymn, Come ye disconsolate, where'er ye languish, come to the mercy seat, fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts, here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. And finally, the instruction we receive, the instruction we have been longing for and anticipating. In Psalm 32, David goes from sin and suffering to singing in verse 11. We read, Be glad in the Lord, 
and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. The joys of forgiveness flow from God's unfailing love and cover the spectrum of our human longing, our longing for communion, protection, guidance, and fellowship. We should see this psalm as a call to gladness, for joy is not just an option for the Christian. It is an imperative. Wherever faith is lively, wrote Calvin, this holy rejoicing will follow. The only way we'll ever be surrounded by songs of deliverance, the forgiveness of our sins, and the removal of our guilts is as we confess our sins before the Lord. So the next time you come to this psalm, pause at verse 5. Embrace the Selah when you encounter it. And consider the importance of confession, both in David's life and in your walk, daily walk before the Lord. Read this psalm again and see the gospel. Read this psalm and meditate upon the mercy of God and the forgiveness that is found in Christ. Read this psalm, confess your sins, and know the blessedness of one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And be glad. Be glad in the Lord and shout for joy. Let's pray. Our merciful and glorious Father in heaven, we are thankful for Christ our Savior, for in Him alone we find hope and joy in this life. We thank You for Your Word, which is ever true, for apart from Your Word we would not know You, nor know salvation. We are so very thankful that in Christ You have provided the way, for He is the perfect mediator who hears our prayers and presents them to You as acceptable. We thank You that when we come to You in the name of Christ and confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive. And You cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. And in this comforting knowledge and assurance, we are made glad and happy and joyful unto rejoicing. What great and wonderful blessings there are for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God whose mercy is everlasting and to Christ who has made us acceptable in your sight. And so we pray fervently in his glorious name. Amen.